Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you are ready to open God's word together this morning, would you say, I am? All right, there's a lot of excitement here this morning. I wanna ask you if you have a copy of God's word to take it today and open it with me to 1 Peter chapter four. 1 Peter chapter four. And if you don't have a copy of God's word, the words will be here on the screen in front of you in just a moment. Over the last few months almost here, which is hard to believe, we've been in a sermon series at Crosslink entitled, Have You Lost It? Have You Lost It? And by asking that question, I'm not asking you if you've lost your keys, lost your cell phone, or lost your mind, because I'm imagining that we've all done that a time or two in our lives. But what we're asking is this, in our lives, in yours and in mine, have we lost sight of the glory of God? Is God's glory still the focus for your life? Is God's glory still the the reason why we do what we do? When we began our series, we were again looking in the Old Testament at the Israelites, how the Israelites, frankly, they had a moment where God was working and moving in their midst. He was meeting with their leader in Moses, but the bottom line is God didn't work how they wanted, and he didn't work in the timing that they wanted. And as a result of that, like so many of us tend to do, they turned inward, they began to focus on self, and they basically said, God, we don't want you right now, we're going to do our own thing. Doing their own thing led led to them making their own God, led to them making their own form of worship and thinking they could do whatever they wanted to do because frankly, they were living to please themselves in that moment. But God shows us in that passage of scripture what it looks like even in our lives today when we lose sight of the glory of God. Over the last few weeks, we've been now looking at the New Testament and seeing the application then of how do we today live for the glory of God. And we begin to recognize that we live for the glory of God by living our lives in such a way that it gives glory and honor and praise to him. In fact, we've seen already how we are to glorify God even in our decisions. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, literally, whatever then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So the driving force in my decision-making should be this. God, does this bring glory to you? But not only that, we saw last week that not only to glorify God in our decisions, but also in our actions. 1 Corinthians 6.20 literally says, for you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Our actions, the things that we do with our hands, our feet, our eyes, all of it is to be done to bring glory to God. Today, we come to a third component of glorifying God, and that is this. God calls us to glorify him in the church. Just as God gave you life and breath for the purpose of glorifying and honoring him, God gives life to a church for the purpose of glorifying him. That means we as a church do not exist to copy the popular trends of the day. We as a church don't exist so that we get more likes on social media. We as a church don't exist so that we have a big budget and we have this movement and lots of cool exciting. We as a church don't exist so that I can try to be cool. Thank God, because I'm not at all. We as a church exist for one purpose and one reason only, and that is to bring glory to God. 
But my question I'm asking today is this. Is God glorified today in the church? When God sees the big C church in America or throughout the world today, is God pleased with what he sees? Or maybe a more pressing question. When the world looks at the big C church today, do they even see Jesus through us anymore? And then more importantly, impressing for each of us individually is, what part does my life, my following Jesus, how does that impact and affect the larger body of Christ? Because God has created not only each of our lives to bring glory to him, but even the church. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. And everybody says, amen. God can do all things, right? According to the power that works within us. To him be the glory, where? In the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever, amen. We exist for the glory of God, but are we bringing him glory? And I think we begin to answer that question in the text today. First Peter chapter four, as I preach on the subject, glorifying God in the church, I wanna ask you, if you're physically able, will you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? Listen to what God's word says, beginning in verse one. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, Arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. But they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Verse seven, the end of all things is near. I don't know if that makes you say, oh me or hallelujah, but that's the truth. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint as each one has received a special gift. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength <clears throat> which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for these moments that we have together. God, I pray today that you would open our hearts, open our eyes, open our ears and our minds to receive what you have for us. God, I pray today that you would help us to see clearly where we stand in our relationship with you. God, help us individually to understand our part and the role that we play in glorifying you in the church. God, I pray in this local church and in the greater body of Christ, the Big C Church, that you would bring about a revival and an awakening in our hearts that would literally point the world to you. And we'll praise you for it in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, you may be seated this morning. Glorifying God in the church. 
I wanna begin this morning by asking you a question to consider. I don't want you to answer it out loud. There's not a multiple choice answer. You can't fail the test, but I want you to answer it honestly in your mind. Here's the question. If you knew that your time remaining on earth was short, what would you do with your time? If you knew that your time on earth remaining was short, what would you do with your time? Some of you, your mind immediately goes to the country music song and you can relate to it and you would say, well, I think I'd go skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, uh, bull riding and all kinds of good time and that's what I would do. But what would you do if you knew your time on earth was limited? And what does your answer with that limited time, what does it reveal about your relationship with God and your response to his will for your life? Peter here begins with a very interesting statement in verses two and in verse seven with a simple reminder that the time that we have in this flesh, it is fleeing. In fact, I wanna remind you this morning that you might live to be 100 years old, that that's becoming more and more rare these days. You might live to be 100 years old, but in light of eternity, the Bible says that your life is just a vapor. It appears for a moment and then vanishes away. In fact, the Bible says that our life here in this flesh, it's like a cloud that comes in and then quickly, it leaves as quickly as it came. We like to think that this world is our home. We get comfortable building our palaces, building our bank accounts, building all these different luxuries around us. But the reality is this life is temporary on this earth and it is fleeing. Every single one of us, I imagine, have been in that place where we have stood there at the coffin. We've stood there at the grave of a loved one that's passed away. And in that moment, the sobering reality that life is short is clearly before us. So how then, in this temporary fleeing life, do we live in a way that matters for eternity? How do we make sure we don't waste the days and the moments that God gives us? How do we live our life for the glory of God in the midst of this temporary stay on earth? Well, God answers that in the context of how we live in the church in 1 Peter chapter four. Now, the believer in Peter's day understood very clearly that the time on this earth was short. And frankly, they lived this way for two reasons. One, they lived their life day by day anticipating that Jesus Christ could come at any moment. In fact, I would remind us this morning that we as the church in 2021 need to be reminded loud and clear that we need to live with a readiness that Jesus could come at any moment. They were ready for that. Constantly day by day longing for and looking for the fact that Jesus said he's gonna come again and so therefore we believe his promise. But the second reason they were looking for the reality that life was gonna be short is because they were facing intense persecution. There was plagues and there were persecutions. There were people who were getting sick. There were Christians who were being burned at the stake because of a wicked ruler by the name of Nero. In fact, he was the first of many successive rulers who were persecuting Christians, trying to wipe them off the face of the earth. And so they literally lived every single day not knowing when it would be their last. But in the midst of such pressure, even in the midst of a plague and of persecution, God reminds them, that their calling was to love and live for him, to glorify him. How can we do that? How can we glorify God in the church today? I wanna make a careful statement before we begin, and I want to say this. Our glorifying God is not measured in the church by the size of the building, the status of the budget, the volume of our singing, the skills of our ministers and ministries, the trendiness of our technologies, or even the size of the crowd. 
Glorifying God happens in two primary ways according to 1 Peter chapter four. And Lord willing, we're gonna pick it up where we left off uh, next week. Number one, how do we glorify God in the church? Here's how we do it. We live out the change that we've experienced in Jesus Christ. How do you glorify God in the church? Here's how. You live an authentically changed life for the glory of God. The Bible tells us loud and clear that when you and I come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, when we put our faith in him, we are not only forgiven, we're not only cleansed of our sin, but immediately at that moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit of God begins to indwell us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 says it this way. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? You've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. In other words, when you and I come to that place, when we realize we have sinned against God, we realize that we have a sinful nature, we keep going to the same old things, we can't get victory, we can't change, and we look to realize that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus rose again from the grave, and that he has the power to give life eternal and life abundant. When we come to that place of salvation, he forgives us and he cleanses us and he changes us and he indwells us with the Holy Spirit of God. Second Corinthians chapter five says it this way, Jesus died for all so that we who live might no longer live for themselves, but we might live for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. It literally means as a child of God, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, literally we are made a brand new creation in Christ. We are under new management. He is the Lord. He is the ruler. He is the one who guides our lives and directs our path. Let me ask you a question. Have you been changed by Jesus? Have you been changed by Jesus? Somebody said, well, I'll go to church. Big whoop. Have you been changed by Jesus? Well, my granddaddy was a preacher. That's not gonna save you either. Have you been changed by Jesus? Well, I, I put something in the offering, but no, no, no. Here's the question. Have you personally accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because if you were in Christ, you were made a brand new creation. And that's Peter's exact point. In fact, Peter says here loud and clear in verse two that we are to live the rest of the time in this flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already is past, which is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, when you know Christ is your Lord and Savior, the old is done away with. It's no longer appropriate. Like an old garment that you used to wear in high school that won't fit you anymore, put that mess behind you. It's what he's saying. You have a new clothing. You've been clothed in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's what he's saying. Live like it. When he talks about the times of the Gentiles, what he's literally saying is the way we used to live before Jesus. And now that you were in Christ, now that you put your faith in Jesus Christ, now that you've accepted him, you are to live out who God has called you to be. Could you imagine this morning how much of a fool I would look if I walked up here onto the stage and then I walked through the lobby and then I walked to the parking lot to hang out, but instead of wearing maybe a sports coat or something, instead, could you imagine what it looked like if I had in one hand my little sippy cup and in another hand my pacifier and over my shoulder was draped my, my Thomas the Train blankie and under my arm over here was my stuffed teddy bear and I was walking around saying hello to people. Can you imagine how much of a fool I would look? I mean, y'all would think this guy has lost it. Y'all would think how childish. My wife would say, that's right, he's childish, you know. Here's the reality, it would be foolish. Why? Because I'm not a toddler anymore. 
I, I, I like to think I'm a grown man these days, you know? But the reality is what God is saying, listen, that's not who you are anymore. Now, if you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says you can be religious as you want to be, but you are still lost in your trespasses and sins. And one of the evidences of that is that you keep going to the same old junk and the same old junk and the same old junk. But when you accept Christ, you're forgiven and you're cleansed and you are changed. And here's what Peter's saying. Listen, the time on this earth is brief. Live out the change. Be authentic. Be all real. Don't be a hypocrite. Live out who Christ has called you to be, a brand new creation. It begs the question, have you been changed by Jesus? But secondly, and it's really the main part of our text today, and that is this. How do we glorify God in the church? We do it secondly by doing this. We are to live today for the coming of Christ. We live today for the coming of Christ. All right, so first off, we live out the change. If you accept Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, you're forgiven, saved, set free from the power of sin in your life. It doesn't mean that you're perfect, but you don't have to keep giving into the desires of the flesh because you now have the Holy Spirit within you to empower you and to help you walk in victory. Live out that change. But secondly, understand this. We're not just aimlessly wandering through life. We're not just passing the time and going through the motions. We're not just trying to fill our hours and minutes and seconds with, with stuff, no. We're living in light of the future. Well, what is that future? That future is this. Jesus is coming again. And one day we're gonna be in heaven with him. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs that without a vision, the people perish. Or another translation is without a vision, the people are unrestrained. Many of us today are living without any restraints, any direction, any clarity or boundaries because we've lost sight of the vision. Jesus says, listen, I am coming again. The Bible ends in Revelations with that final word. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Many of us today can't literally say, come Lord Jesus because we're not ready to stand before him and give an account. Are you ready for Jesus' return? Some of us say, oh yeah, I can't wait to get out of this mess. But I wanna remind you of that return we're gonna stand before God and give an account for how we've lived and what we've done. Are you ready for that? See, in this context, what Peter is wanting them to realize is this, our time on this earth is brief, and so therefore, as a believer, we've gotta live it with an intentionality, Pastor Michael's word, with a strategic focus. Now, now let me illustrate that maybe in a simple way. When we were on our sabbatical this summer, many of you know we took a long trip across the country. And, 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 and we, I mean, I'd mapped out a lot of things, where we're going, what we're doing, and all these different things. We were literally only like a week or so in, week and a half into our trip, when I suddenly realized that I had made a major mistake. And that is that somehow in the midst of all the scheduling, I was a day off. Like, I, like we're literally, we, we left Texas, and we're going towards Arizona, towards Phoenix, to stay with a friend of mine um, that I served with on a ministry team. And we're going towards Arizona, and I'm realizing, wait a second, we don't have anywhere to stay tonight. <laughs> what was I thinking? How did I miss this? And what are we gonna do? And so, of course, it didn't take a, a rocket scientist to figure out. Well, wait a second, we're going to Phoenix. I, I, know, I, think, I think north of Phoenix is the Grand Canyon. And so we basically had a 24-hour period to take in the Grand Canyon. Now, there are some of you that I've told this to already, and you're like, dude, I was at the Grand Canyon for two weeks and only saw you know, a small, we had 24 hours to see the Grand Canyon. Well, I'd never seen it before. I didn't know what to do, so I did what everybody else probably and their brother would do. I went on my smartphone, I Googled, what do I need to see in the Grand Canyon? 
And I'm reading all these blogs and all these reports. I found us a hotel room in Williams, Arizona, right on traditional Route 66. And sure enough, I mean, I made a list. All right, we've got these eight to 10 things. We're gonna do this and we're gonna do this and we're gonna do this. We're gonna go to this IMAX theater. We're gonna go here for dinner. And I mean, I mapped this sucker out. And, and my, my kids can tell you, I think my wife would tell you, it was one of the funnest part of our trips, completely unexpected, wasn't planning it, why? Because we went there with a focus, with an urgency, with a mission, and it ended up being absolutely amazing. It's with that kind of mindset that God is saying, listen, your time on earth is brief. You don't know when it's gonna be your last. So live it, Christian, with a mission, with an urgency, not distracted by all the chaos in the world around you. Well, how do we do that? Four things that here in this moment, Peter is pointing us to. In fact, these four things in the original text are listed as commands. Direct instructions from God. All right, if you're gonna glorify God in the church, here are four things specifically that God is commanding us to do. Because the return of Christ is not just a mental acceptance, it's not just a knowledge, it's not just even a faith, it is something that results in action in our life. So what are these actions? I'm gonna list them as kind of Four B's, if you will. Four things that we are to be in our life. Number one, be focused in prayer. You wanna be ready for the Lord's return? You wanna live your life accordingly? Here's what you do. Be focused in prayer. Surely if there was ever a day where we understood the importance of tuning out distractions and focusing on that which is important, surely it's right now. Just last night as we were sitting there, my family and I had the opportunity to sit down and watch a football game I don't even know how many commercials that came on that were about distracted driving. The gist of the messages was, dummy, put the phone down. You know, that was what it was saying to me, right? I put the phone down, quit being distracted when you're driving because they understand when you're distracted, it brings danger to you and to other people. My son, Mac, when he was learning to drive, I know a lot of people, you don't wanna be prim and proper and safe and things, but when I was teaching Mac to drive, once he got a little comfortable with it, I did everything in my power that I could to distract him while he was driving. So I'm like, what in the world were you doing? I understood that when I was out of the vehicle and his younger siblings were in the car, they were gonna be quiet with him in the car, right? Does that make sense? So I was wanting him to learn how do you handle difficult situations? How do you tune up distractions and focus on that which is at hand? We as believers need to be reminded that God has called us to focus for the purpose of prayer. Here's what he says. He literally says in verse seven, be of sound judgment and of sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. The idea here is that we're to keep our mind steady and clear so that we may focus on God in prayer. The opposite of sound judgment is a Greek word called mania, which literally means frenzy or madness, and from it we get our English word mania. Please understand in Peter's day, there was much that could cause mania frenzy and madness. Literally, the believers were wandering from town to town and place to place, not knowing who was their friend and who was their enemy. They didn't know in that moment when Nero was gonna persecute them, when they were gonna be arrested. They didn't know when they were gonna get sick. They didn't know what was gonna happen with the plague. They didn't know all those different things. But please understand, Peter was calling them not to live in fear, not to live in panic, but instead to live by faith and focused prayer. When we live in fear and worry, it leads to all sorts of unhealthy practices that we see all throughout the church and the world today. But instead, as a believer, we are called to be sober-minded for the purpose of prayer. Let me ask you a question. What in your life today is hindering you from being of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer? What's hindering you? 
For many of us, we've got to learn to turn off the news, tune out the distractions, get rid of the pointless debates, and focus in on the Lord in prayer. When I hear this word of sober spirit, literally what God is calling us to do is to resist laziness and distractions, but instead to be alert and watchful. As Peter pins these words, I cannot help but to wonder if Peter was remembering a very hard lesson that he had to learn. In fact, I can't help but to wonder if we as a church aren't needing to learn it today. In Matthew chapter 26, we forget that, G- that Peter literally just says to Jesus in Matthew 26, and I quote, Lord, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. What Peter's saying is, Lord, I'm with you. I'm with you to the end. Even if it costs me my life, I'm with you, Jesus. And the very next moment, Jesus goes into the garden of Gethsemane, takes the disciples to pray. He brings Peter, James, and John a little further, and he tells them, now, guys, I want you to stay here and watch with me and pray. Three different times Jesus goes further. Three different times he comes back, and what are they doing? They're doing what some of you are doing right now. Right? They are sawing logs. And here's what Jesus says. So you men cannot keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Listen, isn't it interesting how quickly Peter went from, Lord, I will die for you, to then just hours later saying, Lord, I can't even stay watch to pray for you. Could it be that one of the reasons that the church has lost its voice, its power, and its influence in the culture today is because we do not know how to watch and pray? We know how to be entertained, but do we know how to watch and pray? While many in our community and world are hurting, while many are lost in the need of salvation, while evil of all sorts is on the rise, the church has largely fallen asleep and lost focus on our calling to watch and pray. But believers, our calling is still the same from Colossians 4.2. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Christian, here's the question. Are you faithfully looking to God in prayer? I was, oh, I wanna see God do great things in my life. Here's the question. Are you faithfully looking to God in prayer? Secondly, if we're going to live in light of the coming of Christ, be faithful and focus, be focused in prayer. But secondly, be fervent in love. Be fervent in love. Notice what he says in verse eight. Above all, somebody say above all. You know what that means? This is pretty important, folks. At the top of the list, above all, Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. We had a body of believers who were facing all sorts of pressure from every angle they could turn, whether it was persecution or plagues or just divisions within themselves as Gentiles are being saved and they're trying to figure it all out. There's pressure everywhere. So what does he say? Don't be divided over these things. Above all, keep fervent in your love. Sadly today, 2021, great division exists in the large C, big C church. And at times in the local church, the divisions within the culture have also divided many aspects of the church and our fellowship together. We have allowed pandemic politics and preferences to steal our focus on the kingdom of God. Listen to this statement. We have gotten so caught up in what we want our kingdom to look like that we seem to have lost sight of the fact that God does not exist for our kingdom, but we for his. 
History has shown us and will continue to show us that every kingdom of man will collapse and be removed. There's only one kingdom that stands and will stand forever. It is the kingdom of God. So what are we to do in the meantime? Above all, be fervent in your love for one another. The word for fervent here, literally in this original translation, meant to be eager, to be stretched out. Anybody like sports? It was an athletic term. The image here of being fervent in love is literally in that day of a sprinter who's coming to the finish line and they're stretching forward with all they got. You football fans, 2021, it's the guy who's got 100 defenders on him and he's stretching for the pile and he's just trying to get there. Let me ask you a question. Are we today as believers going the extra mile, stretching out, leaving it all on the field to show love for one another? Or are we doing the bare minimum? Or worse, are we sitting on the sideline criticizing those who are? Above all, be fervent in your love for one another. Why? For love covers a multitude of sins. Now, there's a, there's a large group of believers today, there's even a whole denomination today that's using this verse of scripture to condone what God says is sin. That's not what this verse is teaching. This verse is not teaching the acceptance of homosexuality, as some would have you to believe today. Love never condones sin. Instead, love confronts it because love does not dismiss or deny the truth. It rejoices in the truth. So love covers the multitude of sin that has been covered by the blood of Jesus. We see that illustrated well in the context of the woman who was found in adultery. In, in John chapter eight, the Bible tells us that literally the people brought this woman to Jesus and they said, Jesus, here's a woman that was found in adultery. She's caught in the very act. Like we got her red handed, we know. They're of course trying to test Jesus. If they were really trying to per, per, uh, perform justice, so to speak, where's the man in this whole situation, right? In fact, you get the impression that it was one of them that had put her up to it. But nonetheless, they bring, she was caught in the very act of adultery. The loss is the stoner. What should we do? What do you say we should do? And Jesus said, well, I say to you, let, let the one of you without sin cast the first stone. And then he stoops down and begins writing in the ground. I, I, I wish we knew what he wrote. I don't know. But one by one, they begin to drop the rocks, drop the stones. And finally, it's just Jesus left alone with the woman and he asked her, he says, woman, where are your accusers? She said, I have none. And Jesus just covered it all up like nothing ever happened, right? No, here's what he said. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He didn't dismiss her sin. He didn't dismiss the consequences, frankly, that her sin would likely bring to future relationships. Here's what he said. There's grace, there's compassion, but there's gotta be a change. He confronted it. And in that confrontation and her willingness to change, there was a covering, if you will. Love covers a multitude of sins. The whole point of love covering a multitude of sins is this. We were all sinners before Christ, but in Christ, we are a new creation. And so we treat each other by who we are in Christ, not by who we were before him. Second Corinthians 5, 16 says it this way. Remember that passage? If anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Listen to what Paul says just before that. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. It's not about who I used to be. It's by God's grace who I am today in Christ. 
For God, by God's grace, I'm a new creation in Christ. In other words, for those of us who are in Christ, even as his love covered the multitude of sins in our life, our love for one another should model the same. Are we focused in prayer and are we loving fervently? Third, here's the third B. Be familial with others. That's a weird word, but basically here's what it means. If you know Christ is your Lord and Savior, that means we are family. Brothers and sisters in Christ, you belong to me and I belong to you, for better or for worse. We are family. I know that most of you are not happy that you have an Alabama fan in your family, but there's a whole bunch of us who love Jesus too. We're family. I was reminded of that before the pandemic began. I had the opportunity, Brother Daniel Kavitko and I, to go to Ukraine. And there's a missionary, Pastor Alex, and I've been able to fellowship with him a few times. And I met a whole lot of people at their camp and their ministry. And can I just be blunt to tell you that I don't know that hardly any of them spoke English. And the truth is, I don't speak Russian. I learned about 20 different phrases that week. But the fact of the matter is, even though there was a language barrier, there was a genuine love for one another. Just this past week, Pastor Alex sent me a message and he sent me a picture of the people who've been working at the camp this summer. And literally, as I saw the picture, like my, my, my eyes were filled with tears because I love them, I miss them. Because it's not about our language, our place of birth, where we live. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so here's how we practice this in verse nine. He simply says this, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Hebrews 13, one and two says it this way, let love of the brethren continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for by this some have entertained angels without even knowing it. We think of hospitality, we think of being warm and friendly and that's true. We think of hospitality, we think of having someone over for a meal and having fellowship and that's a great application to that. In that day, picture it for a moment, there were no government programs and the ruler of the day was doing everything that he could to get Christians into custody so that he might find ways to torture them for sport. So when believers were going from city to city, town to town, looking for a safe place, they literally had nowhere to stay unless the Christians would open their doors, open their homes, and bless those in need in a very practical and loving way. Can, can I just be honest with you? It's far more than just opening your home. It's really opening your heart to brothers and sisters in Christ who are in need. Can, can I just bluntly tell you this? I, I, maybe the, I've been so encouraged and blessed by the way so many of our Russian and Ukrainian families here open their homes to complete strangers. Your example encourages, challenges, and convicts the majority of us. I thank God for that. Because you practice well, and we all need to practice well because of who we are in Christ. They were literally opening their homes, they're opening their hearts, they're trying to be a blessing. Why? Because they recognize, this is my brother, this is my sister in the Lord Jesus Christ. John Phillips says it this way, overflowing love will find many opportunities to minister to the needs of others. In our culture today, we get so focused on me, we get so focused on self, and frankly, it is very easy to dismiss this command of hospitality because of the pandemic, because of the uncertainties of the times, because of our busy schedules, because of our lack of space in the house, or because of whatever it is we see as a shortage. But we must remember, listen to this, the early church, we must remember them who through both plagues and persecutions continued to meet, continued to fellowship, continued to worship, and continued to show hospitality towards one another. 
We too, in 2021, must be intentional to practice hospitality, even if it demands great sacrifice and creativity. Practicing hospitality not only glorifies God, but it also aids us in preventing isolation and encourages others by showing them that they are not alone. Please understand, I'm not saying that will be without challenge. And I'm not saying that it's easy today. But as much as we long for a fresh move of God and for a revival to take place, maybe, just maybe, what would happen if we started loving God and loving one another and walking in unity together like the early church in Acts chapter two? Could it be that once we did those things, we might also experience the same fruit that they experienced? Are you and I cheerfully showing hospitality to others? Final statement, final B. If you're ready, would you say, all right? Someone said, man, I'm ready for him to shut up because he's stepping on my toes. I don't know. That's up to the Lord. Number four, be faithful in serving. If we're going to live in light of the coming of Christ, we've got to be focused in prayer. We've got to be fervent in love. We've got to be familiar with others, loving each other as brother and sister in Christ. And finally, we must be faithful in serving. We cannot bring glory to God as a child of God without serving him. Listen to this statement in verse nine. As each one, somebody say each one. Each one, that's you, that's me. Notice that's male, female, black, white, young, old. Each one in Christ has received a special gift, a spiritual gift. So employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Here's Peter's point. If you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, you've been brought into the family of God. And as a part of this family, God has given every single Christian at least one spiritual gift. And the purpose of that spiritual gift is not to exalt yourself, is not merely for your own good, it is for the good of others. In fact, Peter even says in this passage of scripture, it is a way that God expresses his grace to others through you. Think of that for a moment. One of the ways that God demonstrates his grace to others is through our acts of service that build up the body of Christ. So what he's saying largely is this. When we choose to sit and watch instead of standing up to serve, it robs us of the blessing, others of the grace, and God of the glory that he is due. So the question is this. Are we sitting or are we serving? So, Pastor, that's an easy question. We're all sitting right now. But you don't understand what I'm saying, though. Are we sitting or are we serving? You know, this summer, as we had the opportunity, really, to see more of the country than we've... I saw more of the country in five weeks than I had seen in the previous 39 years. You know, like, it was pretty crazy. But there was something that I saw over the course of our trip that, at first, it was like, man, that's, that's weird. And then I was like, that's bad. And then the more I thought about it, the more I realized... It grieved me. And then as we come back home and began to realize it's true here, I was amazed in the culture. I mean, everywhere we went, from restaurants to campgrounds to hotels to theme parks, I mean, I mean everything, gift shops, everything. Everywhere we went, I saw a similar problem and similar messaging that said something like this. Help wanted. Help needed. Services limited. 
hours changed. Sign up today. And then I saw places coming back here closed. I, I went through a Wendy's drive-thru the other day that was closed at dinner time. That's not a promotion of Wendy's. I'm just saying, I've never in my life experienced that before. And I'm sitting here looking at the culture and I'm thinking, how crazy is this? And I'm not making a political statement. We have plenty of able-bodied people in the country to work. And yet so few willing to work. I'm, this, is, this is nuts. This is absurd. Like this is, this is insane. What's going on? But then... The more I thought about it, I began to be reminded that we live in this culture. The church doesn't exist in a vacuum. We exist in this culture so that we'd be a light into it. And the more I thought about that and the more I prayed, the more I've wondered what a reproach it is on the name of Jesus Christ that in the area of serving and blessing the church looks no different than the culture in which we live. What an indictment on the name of Jesus that there are ministers and there are ministries and there are opportunities to serve the Lord, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to bless in the nursery, to teach a child, to serve with a youth group, to serve as a gatekeeper, to help with the parking, to help with the hospitality. What an indictment on the name of Christ that we claim to love Jesus and yet we're modeling in the church the same thing we're seeing in the culture. In other words, it grieves me that the state of the Big C Church looks just like the disciples in the upper room in John 13. They all come together, excited. We're going to fellowship together. They didn't really know all that was going on. They get there, and there's no one there to wash feet. And they're all looking around. Hey, who's going to wash feet today? Thomas, your feet stink. You need to have your feet washed, man. Like, how long has it been? Really, seriously, dude. What's going on? And but we don't, we don't have anybody here to wash feet. We don't, we don't have a Gentile low man on the totem pole servant to step up and do this. And while they're belly aching and thinking about it, there's only one of the 12. There's only one in the midst of this group of disciples that were there, the 12 disciples. And then Jesus, Jesus takes off his coat, wraps a towel around him, grabs a basin of water, and Jesus, the son of God, Humbles himself. So while the 12 are bickering and then sitting there doing nothing, Jesus washes the stinky, filthy feet of the disciples. And as if he needed to say anything else, listen to what he says in John 13. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Listen to this. For if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Not if you know them. Not if you feel good about it, if you do them. It's interesting to note that in the very next verse, the only one that this direct instruction did not apply to was the one who was betraying him. The biblical and historical record shows that these disciples then left that room and after the day of Pentecost, spent the rest of their lives living for and serving Jesus. In fact, all but one dying a martyr's death. I pray that the same will be true for us today. 
We won't glorify God in the church without faithful service to him. In other words, the church isn't about us. It's all about Jesus. It's not about what we can get, though I do pray you're being ministered to, but what we can do for him as together we partner to glorify him in the church. Here's the question. Are we faithfully serving the Lord? Why? Why should we? What's the purpose in all this? Why should we be sober-minded for the purpose of prayer? Why should we be loving one another fervently in the body of Christ? Why should we be opening our hearts and homes to be a blessing, to be an encouragement, to help others in need, especially those of the household of faith? Why should we be faithfully serving the Lord? For one reason and one reason only. It's not because the pastor asked. It's not for the name of a church. It's not for a brand. It's not even so that you feel good about it. It's for one reason and reason, one reason only. And Peter answers in verse, seven, verse 11. So that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Friend, if you want your life to matter for eternity, we've got to live for the glory of God and not our own. And I invite you to do so today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the ways that you speak to our heart and mind. Thank you for the reminder that in all things in the church, you have called us to bring glory and honor to you. But Father, it is so easy in our culture to get distracted. It's easy to live based upon what is comfortable and easy for us. But God, I pray that we would be selfless and not selfish. I pray that we would be Christ-like in our love for one another. We'd be Christ-like in our willingness to, to really focus in and our commitment to focus in in prayer. God, I pray that we would model that same fellowship and open-heartedness and generosity that we see in the early church. And God, I pray that we would not be like the 12 in that upper room that were willing to sit and be served, but instead we would be more like Christ who would be looking for the opportunity to put the needs of others before ourselves there. In many ways, what happened in that moment was a picture of a greater sacrifice to come because it wouldn't be long after that that Jesus would literally give his life on the cross. Jesus, I, I just personally thank you that you died for me. When I consider what you gave for me, giving your life for me on the cross and giving your life to me in salvation, it really makes me wonder, how could, I, how could I possibly give you anything less than my life fully surrendered to you? So God, I ask you to show us areas of our life that we are holding back from you. And I pray that you'd convict us. I pray, God, that you would draw us. And I pray that we would surrender our lives completely to you today. I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.